I hope you've been here for the last couple of weeks, but even if you haven't, uh, this standalone message is the third in a four-message series taken from one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 12. In our first message from Romans 12, we summarized the message from the first two verses by saying, we are to offer ourselves to God by living a life of worship. And this life of worship contributes to the transformation of our character into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, in the second message in the series, we learned that our progress toward Christ's likeness does not occur in a vacuum. As individual members of a larger body, it is God's design to grow us spiritually within the context of a community of believers. Now this is an important word for our day. Because I recognize, and perhaps you have as well, that there is a trend. A trend in our day to pursue spirituality in a very private manner. It has become common to hear a person identify himself as spiritual. They say, I'm not religious. I don't identify with a particular church, but I am spiritual. And such a person resists any kind of formal or meaningful connection to a Christian body of believers. But we said last week, we showed from the scripture that such a perspective clearly contradicts the plain teaching of scripture. One of our primary obligations we learned last Sunday... One of our primary obligations is to use our spiritual gifts, gifts and talents given to us by God for the express purpose of building up other believers. So one of the reasons we were saved, one of the reasons we were gifted with spiritual gifts is so that we could help others in their walk with Christ. This is not something we can do alone. God's design is for us to be together, to worship together, to build into one another's lives. Now as we wade into Romans 12 verses 9 through 13, Paul begins to give us some detail. Detail as to what should specifically mark the Christian's life. Now Paul begins his list of characteristics in verse 9. He begins with a characteristic that we might expect him to begin with. He begins with love. Let your love be genuine. Let your love be genuine. In the original Greek, this is a warning against play-acting. It is a warning against pretending. Perhaps you've been in a Christian context where you sense that the friendliness of the group was a bit put on. It was a bit superficial. This happens, I think, in some Christian contexts because we understand we're supposed to be loving. 
We're supposed to be peaceable and friendly and kind and generous. And so sometimes just as a defense mechanism, we we put on a facade of friendliness that doesn't run very deep into who we really are. Paul rejects this. He rejects superficial kindness and love and calls his followers to genuine, measurable demonstrations of love. And then having called us to authentic love, Paul then urges us to abhor, to hate what is evil. Let your love be genuine, but hate, abhor what is evil. Now it's important for us to read that second imperative in light of Jesus' command from Matthew 5.44, where Jesus commands us, love your enemies. This is important because when we say, when we read abhor what is evil, we must never imagine that we can be in a position to hate another human being or to abhor another human being. That must never be the case. Love thy neighbor. Even when your neighbor is your enemy, love your enemies. So when Paul calls us to hate what is evil, what is he saying? In a word, he's calling us to hate sin. Hate that which is, which is counter to God's character. Hate that which is counter to God's will. Hate sin. Abhor what is evil. I don't think Paul is speaking too strongly. I, I, I mean, some of you would say, you know, I wish Paul would temper his language a little bit. Does he really need to say hate or abhor? Why couldn't he just say, do your best to stay clear of? Or, or try to resist this if you can. Why does he use such strong language? Hate, love, abhor, and so forth. This is why I think Paul uses such strong language. I don't know this to be true, but I'm thinking through how I interact with God's will. And temptation. And this is what I think Paul's doing. Paul realizes that the rudder of our actions, if we think of a rudder of a ship, the rudder of our actions is more controlled by our passions than by our intellect. The rudder of our actions is controlled by our passions more than it is our intellect. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I've discovered. Like all of you, I hope, you discover you have certain sin in your life that you want to root out. You see it as counter to God's will. And as I've tried to seek to root out sin in my life, here's what I found. It's not enough for me to see the sin and to understand that what I'm doing is sin. It's not enough for me to have the knowledge or the understanding, even to understand the rationale of my sin. Knowing what my sin is, is not enough to root it out. What I've found is that the the thing that helps me to root out sin in my life is what? My hatred of it. I found that when my passions are engaged, when I have a passion to be like Christ, and when I have a passion to root out sin, it is then that I am most obedient. It's not simply enough to know what the right thing is and what the wrong thing is. Our passions must be oriented as God would have them. 
Paul also commands us in the same verse, hold fast to what is good. So you're hating what's evil, but you're holding fast to what is good. And I think this might be one of the strategies for, for resisting evil. You want to stop doing bad things? Then cling to what is good. Now, and now it says hold fast to what is good, but some translations render it cling to what is good. When I, when I hear the phrase cling to, I think of one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 63, verse 8, where David, when he's writing this psalm, he says, My soul clings to you. My soul clings to you. What a beautiful image. As worshipers gathered on a Sunday morning, what are you trying to do here this morning? I hope you would say, Pastor, I want to cling to God. I want my soul to cling to Him and be in communion with Him. And so as I think about, well, how do I hold fast to what is good? How do I cling to what is good? The answer is I cling to God. If I'm clinging to God, I'm by extension I'm clinging to what is good. If I hold fast to Him, or more precisely, if He holds me fast, then I will cling to what is good. To the degree to which I am connected to God is the degree to which I will love what God loves and hate what God hates. The key is to be connected to Him. Paul continues his exhortations in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And it's clear that the context for this exhortation and these exhortations is the local church. The local gathering of believers. And so what does this mean for us? It means, well, well let me just make it an observation. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. You are accustomed to loving your family. You know you have an obligation to love your family. You know you have an obligation to honor members of your family and to even care for their physical and emotional needs. So you love, you honor, you care for members of your own family. And what we find in Scripture is that we should extend our commitment beyond our household. Extend our commitment beyond our family and closest circle of friends. The kind of care and the kind of concern we show to our own family should also be extended to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now I realize we tend to fold ourselves into a cultural pattern here. And we say, well, i got to look after my family. Of course you do. No one's saying you shouldn't. Where I want to challenge you is to say you need to do more than look after your family. You need to look after God's family. Because you're a part of a bigger family that's not limited by biology. You're a part of God's family united by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have an obligation to one another. I love the next exhortation in this passage. Do not be slothful in zeal. 
And again, I didn't dissect the Greek in that uh, to see if, if there's really a reference to a sloth here. You know, I, the sloth, one of the slowest moving creatures I've ever seen for a creature of that size. Do not be slothful in zeal. Now, I have to be careful here not to sound unkind with this next section. But I need to say, I've been a Presbyterian for a very long time. And I've spent most of my life in the Presbyterian church. And typically, if you've been Presbyterian, you know this is true. Presbyterians tend to be what? Very careful about the way we do things. We're careful with our worship. This is a a very meticulously ordered service. And there are very precise theological reasons for why we do this. And we tend to not get too excited here. We tend not to... You might hear, you know, once in a while you hear an amen. Last Sunday we had a mid-sermon clap. That was unusual. I I encourage it. But that's not something you hear. You don't hear a lot of talking back. I've been in a few contexts that weren't Presbyterian and it's delightful. You preach and they talk back to you. The congregation, it's like a conversation. You say something and they respond and you respond to them and so forth. But Presbyterians tend to be very calm. We're conservative. We're almost stoic-like. We don't like to show a lot of emotion. And here in the Bahamas, we would, we would say very clearly, we need to make sure that we're not becoming like a jumper church. Where do these things come from? Where do these tendencies to be reserved, these tendencies to be conservative, these tendencies to be without emotion, where do they come from? It doesn't come from the Bible. The Bible does not command you to be apathetic. The Bible does not command you to be without feeling. But quite the contrary, the Bible commands your zeal. Every Presbyterian I've ever met, every Presbyterian body I've ever met, needs to remember the Bible, God commands your zeal. Look at verse 11. It's a negative and a positive. Don't be slothful in your zeal. That's the negative part of the command. And then the positive part. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And this is key. This is key. This is where I want to bring in the jumper church. Because the jumper church is listening in saying, yeah, we're going to get those Presbyterians moving. This is good. But here, now, now I've got a word for the jumper church. We're not called to zeal just for the purpose of showing emotion. It's not emotion just for emotion's sake. But it's emotion that's tethered to a purpose. Do you see it? It's not just we're being excitable for excitable's sake. No, our zeal is tethered to a purpose. Our zeal is connected to our work. It's connected to our work for the kingdom. Our zeal is engaged when we serve the Lord. So I would want you to send me home if I stood up here on Sunday morning and I told you 
that our God is a good God and he wants you to be faithful, I would want you to send me away. Because when we consider who he is, when we consider what he's done, when we consider what he's called us to, we need to get worked up about that. And it's not being worked up because we're emotional. We're getting worked up because the work is awesome. And he's called us to it. In the NIV, the Greek says, keep your spiritual fervor while serving the Lord. Keep your spiritual fervor while serving the Lord. You probably already know this. The Greek word that often gets translated as keep can also be translated as guard. So keep or guard. What does that suggest? It suggests to me, and I think our experience confirms this, that every follower of Jesus begins with zeal. When you are redeemed, when you are born again, when God converts you, you are zealous and fervent for Him. I think back to when I first became a Christian, and if you think I'm fiery now, you know, I was, I was much more fiery. To my shame, I was much more fiery as a new believer. We begin with zeal. When we consider for the first time what the Lord has done for us. We begin with zeal as we serve God's purposes for the first time in our life. But it appears that there are things that threaten our zeal. There are things that threaten our fervency. I've watched Christians, I I haven't been doing this for, for all my life, but for 18 years I've been in pastoral ministry and this is what I have seen. I have seen Christians serve with zeal and then have that zeal extinguished because of the criticism of other church members. Now, thankfully, this isn't, as far as I've discerned, this is not a church full of critics, as far as I've discerned. But I think it's important to know because this is the experience of many. Many have had their zeal extinguished by the criticism of other church members. I've also watched some Christians serve with much fervor, only to see that fervor diminish at the hands of a spouse. Or or at the hands of a close family member who did not share their concern for the things of the Lord. So if 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 you're a husband and and your wife isn't nearly as interested, that's going to affect your zeal. Or if you're a husband and your wife isn't interested, that's going to affect your zeal. If the people within your household, your children aren't into it, that's going to affect your zeal. So what do you do? You guard it. You nurture your zeal because there are threats to fervent Christian living. Guard your zeal in Christ. Paul goes on in verse 12. He's just loading in these verses. Now he's saying, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And again, look at what he says about the hope we have in Christ. 
We cannot, we must not, we ought not to be indifferent about our relationship, our hope in Christ. The sense I get from Paul is that the Christian ought to feel deeply when it comes to the things of Christ. There must be a certain level of intensity to our walk. And there must be a corresponding joy. We're to be joyful Christians. If we're lacking joy, we're countering a biblical command. Paul says here, rejoice in hope. That that's not a suggestion, that's an imperative. Philippians 4, 4 and following, rejoice in the Lord always. We're commanded to be a zealous people and we're commanded to be a joyful people. Then Paul tells us to be patient in tribulation. Patient in tribulation. And he uses a word there translated as patient that is elsewhere translated as steadfast. What do I think of when I hear the word steadfast? I want to give an analogy which maybe isn't popular here because it's the wrong season to be talking about this. But think of an impending hurricane. You know, I, we've had this in the last couple of years, serious hurricanes. And as far as I can discern, living here in the Bahamas for the last six years, when a hurricane is on its way, you really have two options. Option one is, I need to get off this island. I need to get on a plane. I need to get on something and get as far away from this, this course of, of, of hurricane as I can. That's option number one. Option number two is to assess your shelter. To look around and say, I, I think I'm going to be okay if I just secure the windows and the doors. And if I stay inside, I think I'm going to be okay. I'm going to find suitable shelter and I'm going to stay in that shelter until the storm passes. I think that's a helpful image for what it means to be patient in tribulation. I think Paul's saying, find shelter in God. Find refuge in God. Cling to Him and you will be able to endure the storms of life He calls tribulation. And because God is our shelter in the storm, because we are clinging to Him, it makes sense that we would also be constant in prayer. Because we just don't cling to God. I don't want that to just be a sense where we cling to God and nothing else is happening. We cling to God in prayer. We cling to God's Word as we study it. That's how we cling. We're constant in prayer. And finally, verse 13, Paul encourages us. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I think this is a great way for Paul to, to round out this section. I think this is Paul's way of connecting back to our need and our obligation to the community. Paul doesn't want us all fired up for Jesus in isolation. He wants us zealous for Jesus within a body of believers. Paul wants the overflow of our passion for Christ to benefit other people. So in other words, the most excited, the most zealous people should be the most generous people. Because our zeal for the Lord should translate into something that benefits brothers and sisters in Christ. 
When God's people are rightly worked up about following Jesus, there should be a corresponding pattern of generosity towards others. Or you could say it this way. As your zeal for Jesus increases, your affection for and your engagement with the local church should also increase. Or to put it more simply, the more you love Jesus, the more you'll love His church. I know it doesn't always feel like that because Jesus is perfect and His church is not. But Jesus died for His church. The bride of Christ is the church. The more we are zealous for Jesus, the more we ought to be zealous for His church. Now you've probably noticed, all I've done this morning is go verse by verse. We've waded through verses 9 through 13. And it's possible, having waded through all of those verses, it's possible that there are some among us this morning who feel no real sense of urgency to do any of the things that have been put forward or or to apply them in any serious way. Maybe your thinking goes something like this. Pastor, I'm only human. I mess up from time to time. You're just going to have to get used to it. I'm not perfect. Or maybe you're thinking, Pastor, I'm doing my best. Please understand that I'm a work in progress. This is going to take some time. So just simmer down and let me go at my own pace. Maybe you're thinking, what's the big deal if my transformation into Christ's likeness is a bit slow? What if I'm just a bit slower in looking like Christ? What's the hurry as long as I get to the finish line? What's the hurry? What's the urgency for my Christ-likeness? Well, I want to share a story with you, a true story, and I hope it imparts a sense of urgency and seriousness uh, for you applying these things. Uh, What I want you to do is, is see that the call to love sincerely the call to serve fervently, the call to endure patiently, pray constantly, and give generously, that this is an urgent call. It's something that should be done now. It's something that should be worked on. In short, I want to make my case for why every Christian should seek to do everything well. That we're not half-hearted about anything, but we're deeply serious about becoming more and more like Christ. Here's what I want to share with you. This very minute, I don't know, what time is it? 11.25. This very minute, my 14-year-old daughter, Anya, is at a Christian sports camp in northern Ontario called Muskoka Woods. Now it's significant on a number of levels uh, why it's, it's important to me on a number of levels that my daughter is at this camp called Muskoka Woods because I went to that camp. I went to that camp and just over 30 years ago 12-year-old Bryn McPhail became a Christian at Muskoka Woods. So it's very meaningful to me that my daughter, 30-some years later, is attending the very camp, the very physical space on earth where Christ redeemed me. She's there right now. Now what's interesting as I think about my own story is I grew up in the church. 
I was baptized at First Presbyterian Church of St. David's, Ontario. I grew up going to Sunday school at Drummond Hill Presbyterian Church in Niagara Falls, Ontario. I was familiar with the gospel. By the age of 12, I had heard the gospel many, many times, but I was not compelled by it. Well, what was the difference? What did Muskoka Woods have, or what did Muskoka Woods do that my local church did not? Now, of course, the theologians among us will say, Bryn, this is God's sovereignty, it was his particular time. No, yes, I know all that. But humanly speaking, what were the visible, measurable factors that were different? Well, let me tell you what was the same. What was the same was the information. The same gospel I heard at Muskoka Woods was the same gospel I heard at my local church. Information cannot save a person. Information alone cannot save a person. It is not enough to know the right things. It's not enough to have the right theology or the right information. There's more to it. And, and we could talk about God's sovereignty in this process, but I'll save that for another day. Here's what I want to tell you. As a 12-year-old boy, I didn't find the information to be all that compelling. And I had no interest in being a follower of Christ. Well, my counselor at Muskoka Woods had a different vision for me. My counselor's name was Ken Harper. I was 12 years of age and he was about 19 or 20. And every evening, Ken Harper would lead us through a Bible study. And a Bible study that I would constantly interrupt and disrupt. You see, you're getting a picture. I was not a good 12-year-old boy. And if you doubt that, I invite you, you can call my mother. I'll give you the phone number. She can fill in the details. I was not a good kid. I was the kind of kid that caused Sunday school teachers to retire. Seriously. Seriously. I was that kind of kid. And, and, and my aim was to break Ken Harper's spirit. My aim was to so disrupt his Bible study that he would just say, oh, that's enough. Let's go swimming. But Ken was the most patient person I'd ever come across. He was so patient. Every single night as I disrupted, as I interrupted, Ken Harper was patient with me. And it was also clear that Ken was a very kind and loving soul. It was, Ken wasn't going through the motions here. You could tell Ken genuinely loved every young man in the cabin. And that our lives were personally very important to him. It was also clear that Ken wasn't, uh, this wasn't a rote thing. This wasn't something he memorized and that he was just coldly giving us the facts of the gospel. Each night as Ken taught from the Bible, he did so with a deep, intense feeling. You could sense that the message of Jesus saving us by His grace through His work on the cross, that this was the most important thing a person could know. Ken Harper was definitely a Christian who was full of zeal. In short, what I want to say is that my counselor, Ken Harper, had all of the marks of a Christian that you read about in Romans 12, verses 9 to 13. 
And being marked in that way was compelling for me in a way that my local church was not. God used a very Christ-like Ken Harper to compel a smart aleck. I thought of a different word, but let's stick with smart aleck. God used a very Christ-like Ken Harper to compel a smart aleck 12-year-old Bryn McPhail to repent of his sin and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I share all that with you? I want you to know it matters how you carry on. Not just what you know, not just where you belong or where you attend. It matters how you carry on, how you live out your life in the presence of other people. The manner in which you deliver the gospel is extremely important. Now, God can overcome our deficiencies. God, thankfully, in His sovereignty, can overcome what we are lacking. But let's do our part. Let's live in a manner worthy of our calling. There is an urgent need for us to be more like Jesus. I want us to look at that mission statement, pursuing Christ's likeness and community transformation according to the Word of God. I want us to look at that and not say tomorrow. And not say next month. And not say next year. Pursue Christ today. It matters. It will matter to those whom you interact with who do not yet know Jesus Christ. Souls are on the line here. This is a serious thing. That you love sincerely. That you serve fervently. That you endure patiently. That you pray constantly. And that you give generously. To help lost souls find Jesus Christ. To help lost souls find Jesus Christ. It is required of us that we do everything well. That we do these things well. There is an urgency. Go and find lost souls and be used and blessed by God. Amen.